many fun stories about playing in the Muddy Waters band, uh, some of which I could repeat even <laughs> here this morning, but I won't do that um, because I am here to preach, and uh, I do think that's a great, great question, though. Why don't we live so God can use us? That's a great question for the season of Lent, isn't it? Why don't we live so that God can use us? It just says traditional here. You guys are, you guys are wondering, where do you get the Muddy Waters thing? Well, <laughs> I'm familiar with that song from Muddy Waters, so that's why I had that Muddy Waters story. I'm not completely uh, losing it yet. So let's pray. God, open our ears that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning as we reflect on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Pray that you would meet us, each one of us, uniquely. Even as we were reminded in the prayer, the call to worship this morning, you know our weaknesses, each one of us. You know our temptations, each one of us. You know the ways in which we have a very difficult time leaning into the flourishing that you set forth for us as human beings. We sometimes seem as if we're bent on self-destruction. But you know, you know, and you are quick to come to us, and you are quick to deliver us, quick to forgive us, quick to set our paths on true north again. And so we come this morning to, to hear the gospel, trusting your spirit would transform us in the hearing thereof, that we might live differently as a result. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the reading is from the Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter. This is right after Jesus' baptism, by the way. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days, 40 nights, Afterward, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Then the devil left him. Suddenly angels came and waited on him. Thanks be to God for the gospel. Amen. Last week was Transfiguration Sunday, as some of you may recall. Uh, we talked about the way in which the transfiguration of Jesus is a preview to the victory that Jesus will achieve, but a victory that will come only after suffering and death 
that he will undergo in Jerusalem. And you may remember from last week or another time that the transfiguration occurs right after Jesus says to the disciples that he must undergo suffering and death. And you might recall that Peter's response to that was, that's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. You, you, you got to get your head straight here. You're not going to go into suffering and death. We're not going to have that. And Jesus remarkably says to Peter very sternly, we know it's always lovingly with Jesus, but very sternly, he says, Peter, get behind me. I'm going to paraphrase here. You're acting like the evil one right now. You don't have your heart and mind set on God's ways. You have your heart and mind set on the opposite of God's ways. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. The transfiguration comes along right after that encounter. Right after that encounter. And with the way all that's set up, especially in Matthew's gospel here, that the transfiguration is set up as a response to Peter's convoluted idea that, well, first of all, it's not a convoluted idea from a human perspective. I mean, you don't want a Messiah that suffers and dies. You want a Messiah that comes in and kicks some butt, right? You know, a war horse, not a donkey marching humbly into Jerusalem. So, got to cut Peter some slack. But anyway, Jesus knows better and he confronts him. And then the transfiguration happens. And we see Jesus for a moment there, mysteriously with Elijah and Moses. Jesus shot through with the glory of God, a preview of what God intends for all human beings. But certainly here in Matthew's Gospel, it functions as a preview for where Jesus is headed. The cross will come. The suffering will come, the shame will come, the ignobility will come, the seeming defeat of Jesus will come in Jerusalem. All that is coming. And like a preview in a movie, right? A snapshot, a fast forward, none of it's going to have the last word. None of it will. Because Matthew wants us to see so clearly, and the other gospel writers too, and especially John in a very interesting way, but that's another sermon, another liturgical year, wants us to see that glory and power are always defined by God's self-giving love. Glory and power are defined by a cruciform life. Glory and power manifest in this world in humility. You know, I'm going to mention this a little bit later maybe, but it's just appropriate here. You know, the Christ hymn in the Christ poem, the Christ hymn in Philippians, you know, sort of like the, the anchoring passage for how Paul understands the character of God as revealed in Jesus. And, you know, it's that beautiful language of may have been set to music in the early church. Some people think it was that Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but emptying himself, taking the form of a slave, living his life for others, even to the point of death on the cross. So the transfiguration happens as a preview 
of Jesus' victory, but a victory that comes through suffering, humility, and death is answered by God with the resurrection. The transfiguration, of course, occurs later, right? We're Matthew chapter, you know, early in Matthew right here. Transfiguration happens later in Jesus' ministry as he sets his face toward Jerusalem, as we mentioned. But we see this morning that the marriage of glory and power to a cruciform life, that's right there from the beginning. And we see it in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Taken as a whole, the temptations that the evil one throws at Jesus can be seen as temptations for him to exercise power and privilege in a self-aggrandizing mode. In each instance, Jesus refuses to use power for his own advantage in a glitzy kind of a way. In each instance here, as in the whole of his life, Jesus exemplifies that he will only use power in a way that honors God, which is that cruciform life, right, that we were talking about. Professor um, Anna Case Winters, who I've been, been reading her Matthew commentary as our lectionary has had us in Matthew for a good little bit now. I really like it. And she puts it this way, and I'm going to quote here a few of her insights. In each of the temptations, the tempter begins, if you were the son of God. The word translated if could equally be translated since, since you're the son of God. The question at issue is not whether Jesus is the son of God, but since Jesus is the son of God, what will that mean? How will he, how will he live out his relationship to God as God's son. The temptations he faces will each in turn urge him to take his relationship to God as a, as a position of privilege, using it to meet his own needs, receive protection from the vulnerability of his humanity, and gain power over all the kingdoms of the world in a way that doesn't include the cross. Is this what it means to be the Son of God? Or will Jesus understand his calling in terms of God's people and towards that end, serve them and serve them even to the point of suffering death for them in Jerusalem? Well, we know the rhetorical question, right? The answer is Jesus chooses the latter. A quick sidebar here. All of this talk about a cruciform life and a refusal to use power for his advantage, this is not just language about a Jesus who's willing to suffer humility for a season, only to come back one day ready to kick you-know-what and take names. This is not Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to be humble now. I'm going to show everybody what it looks like to be a humble human being. I'm going to serve, I'm going to die on the cross, then I'm going to be resurrected, then I'm going to be ascended, then I'm coming back and watch out, because then I'm going to be different. Nope. No, whatever it means 
for God in Christ to exercise power and judgment, which we do believe will happen in the joining of this world and the world to come, God in Christ will exercise power and judgment, and he will do it in such a way that eradicates evil in this world so that the vulnerable, those who are, have evil do the worst to them, will be confident that peace, love, shalom, they will be cared for in the world to come. And not only them, of course, but for everyone. You know, we do believe in God's judgment, God's power, God vanquishing evil and making the world be a safe place for everyone where human beings flourish as they're made to flourish and care for one another as we are made to care for one another. We do believe in all of that. Whatever it means for God to do all of that, it doesn't mean that God suddenly uses power in the way that we see power and might used in our world today in self-aggrandizing ways, in selfish ways, in vindictive ways. Frankly, we don't know how it's all going to play out. But we do know what the boundaries are. And we do know that God, well, like we like to say here, based on that Christ poem and grace, based on what we see this morning and the way Jesus holds his power in the midst of being tempted to use it in the wrong ways, you know, we like to say, and I can't remember who we stole this quote from, but we like to say that in God, there is Christ-likeness. God is Christ-like. And in God, there is no unchristlikeness at all. This is true north for you and me. And this is what we see in the, well, I'm looking around for my water bottle. I'm sorry. It is hot in here to me. Um, and I need some water. So, this is true north for us. I, I had intended mentioning this this morning, but uh, last night we had the privilege water. Last night we had the privilege of going to um, a program at the school where our daughter attends, and um, she's part of a group there called Bridge Builders, and the group focuses on racial reconciliation, uh, justice issues, tending well to people at the margins. And uh, the speaker last night was just really lovely. Um, she has a, a ministry that is devoted to educating churches and institutions around the country on this. And, and she's uh, the one who often gets called upon to speak at these Bridge Builders events. And um, I'll think of her name later. Sorry. Um, but, you know, one of the things that she was talking about is the importance of Christian people advocating for those who have no voice. And she gave lots of examples in the civil rights movement, freedom riders, and, and this, this kind of thing. But where do we get that idea from? We get that idea from the very character of God as God reveals God's self as cruciform. Caring for others. In God, God is Christ-like. There's no unchristlikeness at all. So far this morning, we've been exploring the way in which Jesus' temptation is a revelation of his character as a cruciform Messiah, right? Uh, but as we move towards wrapping up this morning, 
I want to think with you a little bit about how Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness is meant to be a specific encouragement to you and me as we move through life and that we are not always so successful in our battles with temptation as we move through life. And that's what I really appreciated about that prayer of calling this morning. You know, here's a little, here's a little tip if you ever want to find out what the prayer of calling is going to be before the prayer of calling happens, you can Google Book of Common Prayer, Collects, Contemporary, find what Sunday we're on, and there's where we get it from each week. But that Collect this morning, I loved it. It's been pray, like I said, all over the world, different languages, and in it, you know, that prayer so tenderly names that particularity of God's care for us. There's nothing in our life about our temptations and our struggles that God does not already know about. And he's right there with us, walking alongside us in the particularity of those temptations. And he sees us on the other side of all of them. He sees us with Jesus, if you will, at the transfiguration, with Jesus at the ascension. Our lives, as human lives, shot through with the glory of God. That's how God sees us in the particularity of our temptations. So, you know, there's this other aspect of, of Jesus in the wilderness. The church has championed in its wisdom over the years of understanding that Jesus is there somehow mysteriously for you and for me. And you and I close to his heart while he uses the power, holds the power that he has for Jerusalem knowing and trusting that God will raise him from the dead after he vanquishes evil and sin on our behalf. And how does the church get that idea? Well, in part because of how Matthew sets up Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Um, I mentioned that... Um, that Jesus um, comes into the wilderness for 40 days right after his baptism. And Matthew seems to set that up for us in a way that um, symbolizes, if you will, a redo of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years after they come through the Red Sea, Right? Israel comes through the Red Sea. Is anybody else hot in here? Or is it just me? God, it is hot. I think Matt Lovell just went to open the doors. Yeah, open all the doors back there. I don't know. Something. Um, thank you so much, guys. This is going to be... I'm coming to the end here, okay? <laughs> one, one way or the other. Um, <laughs> so... Um, so Matthew, Matthew sets this up to, to, for us to see in Jesus' um, 
temptation in the wilderness, kind of a redo of Israel in the wilderness for 40 days after coming through the Red Sea. Jesus comes through his baptism. And then remarkably, Matthew says Jesus is led by that same spirit that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased on behalf of the Father. By that same spirit, Jesus is led into the wilderness. Funnily enough, in Mark, the first gospel, the word isn't led. <laughs> the word is the spirit casts him into the wilderness, right? So this is idea of, well, it, here I am, right? To deal with whatever I need to deal with. And um, we're like Israel. Israel doesn't do so well in the wilderness. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. More often than not, they don't. Israel fails a lot in the wilderness. And we fail a lot when we wrestle with temptation. Did I mention I'm reading a book called Failure for Lent? It's in the email that went out this week if you want to read along with us. Um, but Jesus, however, doesn't fail. Jesus succeeds where we fail. Jesus' track record is perfect. And our union with Jesus in faith and repentance means that we will always move through life with Jesus' help. As Jesus is pictured in the, in the book of Hebrews, he is the one who's always alongside us. He's the one who's tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And Jesus is there to encourage us to empower us to resist temptation, to be right there to forgive us when we don't resist temptation well, when we fail. And then in that moment of forgiveness sets us toward hope instead of despair, like what you were talking about, Mary, when you were quoting Caleb earlier in the service. There's always a moment in our life when we realize our failure and in that moment, do we think about ourselves and define ourselves by the failure or by the way God sees us? And Jesus is always there. And that's why he was in the wilderness. That's why he was succeeding where we fail. So that he can not only empower us, but forgive us and set us back on our true north, which is always toward hope and never towards despair. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.